Good morning, everybody. So it's a joy to see everyone here on the 4th of July. That's so great to see. Um, and that we, when we think about that around the world, there's many people that don't have the freedoms that we have to be able to come together and, and to meet. Is that okay? Um, so in, around the world, there's places where we know people in other countries that are meeting on their beds in, in houses in, in, in secret. And so when we think about that, that although there's so much chaos going on in countries and got a lot of problems going on, but God's on the throne and, and uh, he's protecting those that, uh, that even in the midst of persecution and, and he's blessed us to be in a place where we can meet and, and come together. And uh, it's nice to be able to see your faces, too, because the last time I was up here, I could only see your eyes, so good, so it's, uh, it's good to see, see your faces. So um, we're, we're going to be starting a series um, coming up in the next several weeks, and it's Growing in Christ, and so that is how we live the Christian life, how we are, what is a Christian, and um, how are we supposed to behave in the world, and what is kind of given clarity of what things are sin and not sin, and how we should um, uh, live and interact with one another. Um, so we're going to be going through this series, but before you can really get into all that, we have to really describe what is the church and uh, what is a Christian. Because the, the Christian, we, we often hear that term, it's a personal, um, Jesus is my personal Savior. And, and that's true, Je Jesus is, there's a personal relationship there. But also you are united with the body of Christ, the, the church, and it's, a, it's, a, it's through all history um, and in the present times and the future, we're going to be united together for eternity. These are your brothers and sisters, those around you right here, you're going to be spending eternity with. And so um, this is something really important for us to understand as we get into this. And so basically what I, what I want us to look at is the book of Revelation. And uh, if you go to chapter 19, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 7 through 9. And I kind of want to just call this the radiant bride of Christ. And um, before we start, let's, let's open in a word of prayer. So, Father God, I thank you that you've brought everyone here uh, safely. And in your providence, you have everyone here that is meant to be here to hear these words, uh, whether here pre present or those that are online. And we pray for everyone to be able to have ears to hear your words. These are your words from, from the Bible, which is inerrant, it's sufficient. Um, it is God speaking to us. And this letter that you gave to John is a letter for us today. In the midst of persecution and strife and battles with sin and uh, seeing a world in chaos... You gave this letter as an encouragement that Christ is on the throne and his return is at any moment and that he's gathering his bride, he's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so I pray, Lord God, that you, are, you fill me with your spirit that I'm able to proclaim the truths of the gospel faithfully and that we will be transformed as the Word of God renews our minds. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you uh, have your Bibles open and if you turn to Revelation 19, 7 through 9, we're going to read 
the very words of God, actually, specifically, as we know, Jesus is God, and so he presented himself to John, and he gave him these words to preach, uh, to proclaim to the churches. Um, the church was in, facing persecution in the first century, as we are seeing today and throughout church history. And so the book of Revelation was not to be a scary book. Unfortunately, movies like Left Behind and these different movies have exaggerated things and have kind of made things scary. I remember as a kid, we watched the um, movie, I believe it was called Hell's Bells, Heaven's Flames, uh, he Heaven's, Heaven's Bells, Hell's Flames, and it terrified <laughs> me as a kid. And as I learned what the book of Revelation is about, it's a book of encouragement. It's complex. There's symbolisms, and there's all these things that you have to understand. Um, and a lot of times, if you look at the Old Testament, it will explain those things. Um, but it's not a book to run from. It's a book to find encouragement. And so let us read um, Revelation 19, 7 through 9. The Word of God says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And so thus concludes the reading of the Word of God. So I mentioned briefly about that movie and growing up in the church. I grew up in the church since I was a baby. And I remember that I thought I was a believer. I was baptized at eight years old. And I, I thought I loved the church. I, I went to church all the time. I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evenings. There um, was youth groups on Fridays. The, we, um, I lived not too far from the church, so I would get on my bike sometimes and even would go to the church and hang out at the office. I was there all the time. I, and so I, I thought about what, what is, as I grew older and I realized that, that I wasn't a believer at that time. I knew all the right things to say. I prayed the prayer. I walked down the aisle, but my relationship with sin had not changed. I may have been innocent in, this, in the eyes of the world standards, but my relationship with sin was never changed. I was not converted. I was not made new. And as I grew older in my teenage years, that became more and more revealed of my depravity. And so I was, I was, I was deceived by my, my, my good works, my eloquence, and be able to quote Bible verses at a young age. And I had many friends there. It was a big youth group, and kids from the school would come, and it was, it was the hangout. It was the social club of, of the area. And um, we had a very emotional experiences at this church. It was um, very charismatic, and we, there was you know, lively music, and people, back in the day, people would run around the church building, and they would bounce up and down and jump around. And um, and for me, it was, it was entertainment. It wasn't, we thought it was the Holy Spirit moving, but it was more entertainment. The kids would make jokes about what was going on. You know, Sister So-and-So would do the spinning around and, during the worship service, and we would say, oh, she's doing the helicopter. 
And if she did it halfway, it was the sprinkler because it was only halfway, you know, like. So we had these, these terms and we didn't take it seriously, you know. So we thought we loved the church, but really it was entertainment, it was emotionalism. Sadly, even we would say if the music was passionate and, and emotional and there was no worship and people were at the altars crying, it was, that was a great service because there was no preaching. And that should break our heart because we, that we looked at, that we didn't read the Word of God and learn the Word of God and have, teach me what, how I need to live the Christian life and that was a good service if we didn't have that. And that's, that's a sad thing and that's a reality today. And so within the visible church, there's heresies and there's Bible, biblical interpretations that have crept in, unnoticed like a snake slithering through the openings. Um, to be relevant in the church we see today, we dress the church up like a prostitute and to attract lovers. We see that we invent methods. We, we say there's actually statistics and they'll try to say, well, if you have a fog machine and an electric guitar, then you'll get more attendance and you'll get um, higher rates of of, uh, of tithes and offerings. And these are, we treat it like a corporation. We try to attract people by saying, okay, what's going to make them happy? What kind of music they're going to like? What kind of th things are going to make them pleased? And, and rather than saying, what does God say in his word? What does he give us that we need to do to, to honor him and to give him glory as we gather together? And so we entice people through these methods. We exchange biblical truths for a lie, the things that tickle the ear. Um, we, we share messages that are all love and tolerance, and we, we try not to talk about sin. We say that we're, we're wounded people, and we just need to have some, some love and compassion because we're wounded. We, we don't have sins. We have syndromes, and we don't call people to repentance. We don't try to hold each other accountable we don't ever want to talk about that, to have someone say, you know, how, how are you doing with sin today? Like, that would be offensive if I said that to you. And that was very common in, in back in the day. So there's this grace without commitment and devotion or obedience. And we want that personal relationship with Christ, as I mentioned, but while rejecting the body of Christ. And we have minimalized the value of the church. I mean, we've seen... we. You know, we have people, we had circumstances where we couldn't gather, but also it's, we've, it's exposed some things where now we think, well, I can stay home, I can turn channels if I don't like that sermon today, and maybe he's getting a little offensive, let me flip it to the next guy, and, and just kind of alternate and treat in church like that. You can't baptize people on the internet, you can't take the Lord's Supper on the internet, or, so it's, we've minimalized this. And, um, and we've minimalized the work of Christ and, and what he's done for us. And so we want to look at what is the bride of Christ? What is the church? And so there are people mixed in the church that are authentic believers. Um, and they call themselves Christians. And there's others that call themselves Christians and they don't desire to live in complete obedience. Jesus spoke of them in Matthew 25 he, when he said that he will separate the sheep from the goats when he returns. And however, in the invisible church, in other words, in the building you have this visible church where it looks like there's a whole bunch of people that are believers, but within that there's this 
this really authentic people that you can't, you can't see their hearts, but you see the fruits, and they are authentic believers. They're born again. They're living faithfully to Christ every single day, striving to obey him, and they're the ecclesia, as it says in Greek, the called out ones, called out from darkness to light. And the word of God also refers to the church as his bride, the bride of Christ or the body of Christ. And just as when a man and a woman unite in holy matrimony, they become one flesh. And at that moment of salvation, the Christian becomes uh, united with Christ as his bride. One flesh. She is his body. And Christ is the head, leading her to eternal glory. She was chosen by the Father for his Son, redeemed by the Son, betrothed for the Son, purified and one day glorified, united as one in perfect harmony in the new heavens and the new earth. Now that's good news. And so when you think about that the Father chose us for Christ, in ancient Near East uh, marriages, they were arranged by the fathers. The marriages were arranged. And as an earthly father, you would want to choose the perfect man for your daughter. And, and so when you think about that, God, the father, chose the least for his son. That which was imperfect so that he can perfect. Regenerating her heart, purifying and cleansing her of her iniquity and preparing a bride for the groom in the image of Christ making her the glory of Christ. And all things were handed over to Christ by his Father, including those he chose to give his son in spiritual marriage. Before he formed us in the womb, God knew us, Jeremiah 1.5, and wrote the names of those he chose to be his bride in the book of the, of the Lamb. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.3-4, to be the treasured possession, Deuteronomy 14.2. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, enemies of God, children of wrath, says Ephesians 2. Filthy, unlovable, unworthy of grace, and yet he redeemed us and called us by name, clothing us with the righteous garments of Christ, adopting us into the, his family, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so we, as Christians, are betrothed to Christ. In modern time, we would say engagement. But things were very different in that time when you think about betrothment. Paul said when referring to marriage that this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church, Ephesians 5.32. In ancient Israel, the betrothed period lasted six months to a year. But there was something different than what we see today. We often get engaged, and we have these long engagements and we kind, of, we kind of prolong them sometimes, and we want to get to know each other, or sometimes we want to play house, and we want to live together, and we have these kind of things. And we, we have these moments like that. But this was serious, that the, when you did this, the betrothment was as if you were married. It was, this is my wife, even though we're not living in the same household. It was, she was considered his wife, and she was bound to be faithful. And if unfaithful, she would be considered an adulterer. The betrothal made you legally married even before the ceremony. And the punishment, if you were unfaithful, was stoning by death. And if she was found not to be a virgin, the husband could quietly dissolve the marriage and sign a divorce bill. And so that's why you see Mary and Joseph, when he, was, he wanted to protect her during that time, because she was at risk if they thought that she was an adulterer to be killed. 
We can understand why Paul said that marriage is so profound that it relates to the church. That our marriages are to reflect the gospel to an, a, to an unsaved world. This relationship that he is the man is the head of the home and the wife is, is in this relationship of submission but is respect. This is mutual respect for one another and they, in, in spite of their flaws, they forgive one another, they love one another, there's unity and this reflects the beauty of God's relationship with us to a dying world. Individuals throughout redemptive history, unworthy sinners were chosen by God the Father and given to the Son, Jesus Christ. And those individuals were baptized in the family of God, the body of Christ. And they are Christ's betrothed bride. And during the period of betrothment, the groom would pay a dowry, sometimes called a bride price or a common wealth, a bride wealth, which was a payment made by a man as a gift to the family of a woman he desired to be his wife. When I was in Africa, they actually asked me, how much did I pay for Paula? And I was, he's like, well, I paid for mine. I got a goat. I gave him a goat. I get, and my other one, I gave a blanket and that kind of thing. And I'm like, uh, that was, that's kind of crazy that she just asked me that. <laughs> like, how much did I pay for my wife? And um, I'm paying for it now, you know. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is the reality. When you think about the beauty of what this means in, this, in history, so you think about the prophet Hosea, and, and he, we're told about this marriage that actually is called the wife of whoredom in Hosea 1-2. I mean, this is a dramatic, sad story with a, a tremendous uh, relationship to Christ and to his church. And she, this woman had this sketchy past already when he married her, and it went downhill from there. They had three children, and then she left him. And God told Hosea to name his children after the spiritual reality of his life and marriage. The first child was Jezreel, named after the place of death and brutal carnage where atrocities were committed in the name of power and success. His daughter was Lurohama, meaning no mercy or without compassion. Some translations say not loved. His third child was Loami, meaning not my people. And finally, God tells him to take back the woman who should have been stoned to death by the laws of the land and not only take her back, but repurchase her from slavery. The man who she ran to and embraced in adultery required a payment to be released back to her husband. And the law allowed Hosea to punish her harshly. And instead of doing that, he received her back into his home. He paid the man the price for her freedom in Hosea 3.2. And he says this, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And then you will know I am the Lord. And here you see this relationship. Hosea's life represented the life of us. To Christ. We were adulterers running from God, and He bought us with a price. We were idolaters following the God of this world. We were enemies of our Creator, enslaved to our faith, our sinful passions, in rebellion against the Holy God. And yet Christ came as our substitute, lived the life we could not live without sin, 
Instead of justly condemning us of our sins, pouring out the wrath of God upon us, Christ paid the dowry for us. Christ paid the price that we owed. There was a price. The the wages of sin is death. And he paid the price. He took upon himself the wrath of God that we deserved. He scooped us out of the filth of sin and reconciled us to God. He betrothed us. And we entered into a committed relationship with Christ, united with innumerable people throughout history and the earth. He is our groom, we are his bride, and we give up everything for him. And in him we abide. We wait patiently for his return, anxiously waiting our wedding day when we will be united in glory with him for eternity. If you think about the Old Testament In Isaiah 54, 5 through 8, here's this also pointing to Christ in the Old Testament. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit. Even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with compassion I will gather you. In in an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. And so you think about this in verses 7 through 8, it says about Rejoice for the wedding, the marriage of the Lamb, for the bride has made her ready. And Christ is returning for a bride who has prepared herself. A church that has remained faithful and not prostituting herself, selling out to the world. What does that mean to sell out to the world? It's when you say, well, the Word of God says this, but I still like this and that, and I'm going to follow that. I know it says that I must be sexually pure outside of marriage and, not, and I must be faithful to my wife, or I must be married before I have sexual relations. But the world says this, so, and, and it's attractive, and this is what I like, and this is what I feel, so let's go after that. The world tells you that the culture is you have to follow this. If you're not this, then you're against us. If you don't hang a certain flag on your, on your window of your business, then you're, you're, not, you're not with us. But a Christian says, I'm not selling out. I'm standing firm. Christ over culture. And she's committed to Christ. She is working out her salvation with fear and trembling, producing fruit and putting to death the flesh. In the coming weeks, we're going to be starting this series, as I mentioned, about the growing in Christ. And this is talking about preparing for Christ. When we are trying to live holy and pleasing to God, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but because we love Him so deeply that we just want to serve Him. We want to be Christ-like. The things of the world doesn't entice us as much as we used to be. We still sin, but yet we're disgusted by that sin. And we, we strive to be more like Christ each and every day. And the thing is, he didn't abandon us to just try to be holy and to live a Christ-like life and, but on our own. If you think about the application of the marriage in the Old, in the old Testament times, in the, in the first century, there was also the friend of the groom. And during the betrothment, the bride often would not see the groom until wedding day. Sounds familiar. We're waiting for Christ, our groom, and we're waiting. 
And so later in Israel's history, the groom would seal their commitment with a gold ring or something of value. And the bridegroom would declare, see by this ring or token, thou art set apart unto me. Christ, the bridegroom of the church, ascended to heaven and is reigning now. He did not depart and leave his bride to prepare for his arrival without help. And we, we heard the word of truth and gospel of salvation and we believed in him. And he sealed his church, his bride, with the promised Holy Spirit, as it says in Ephesians 1.13. And during this preparation, the bridegroom chooses a loyal friend, someone trustworthy, to prepare the bride for the wedding. And he would accompany her throughout the betrothal period and helped her to get prepared. And once the ceremony started, that friend heard the bridegroom's voice. Sounding familiar now. He would know that he did his job in preparing that bride to receive the bridegroom. John 3.29 describes John the Baptist as the friend of the bridegroom who rejoiced because he heard the bridegroom's voice when he heard about Jesus preaching. And Christ also uses the Holy Spirit to prepare and to purify us and to sanctify us before the arrival of the King. If you have the Holy Spirit, there's this, this consciousness that you have that, that you know, I shouldn't be doing this. And you may give in to that sin, but there's this, this mourning over your sin. This is where the, the blessed are those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit, those who are completely emptied of themselves and they trust in Christ alone and they mourn over their sin and they're like, Christ, I just need you can't do this without you. I can't prepare without you. I can't go on each and every day. We, 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 we hate our sin and we need him. We depend upon him. He also uses pastors to equip the church and we're blessed to have pastors here, elders here. And Paul said to his flock that he was jealous for them with a godly jealousy for he betrothed them to one husband so that to Christ he might present them pure, a pure virgin 2 Corinthians 11.2. And so I ask, are we preparing for Christ? Are we living for Him now and living as if His return is at any hour? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's, that's, some, that's some controversial words right there in, the, in, these, in these times. Because what happens when someone passes away and we know that they didn't know Christ, they didn't live for Christ, and we say, well, he's in a better place. But let's be real. We have to be real. We have to be biblical. It says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who wash their robes, who live a life, a holy life, who hate their sin and love Christ more than anyone and everything. And outside of the wedding ceremony, says Revelation, that are the dogs outside of the gate. And in 1 Corinthians 6 through 11, talks about neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor infeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, or, or the drunkards, or the revilers, or the swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's, that should be something that hits us in the face. But this is something that's different. This is, what the church, this is why the church is different. Because we're sinners, saved by grace. And he says this, but so such were some of you. We were those things at one time. We were the fornicators and the adulterers and the homosexuals and the thieves and the drunkards and all these things. But he's saying, stop. 
Now live for Christ. Live differently. Live, live for Him. Be different from the world. Be preparing for Christ. You have been sanctified, made holy, separated from the world. You have been justified. You've been made right before a holy God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of a God. And as bride, you, we are united in, his body, in the body of Christ. Our bodies are a member of Christ. And Paul uses graphic language. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, he says, how can we join ourselves, the body of Christ, with a prostitute? I mean, that's harsh language if you think about it, that the body of Christ, that if you are committing these sins, that is as if you are taking the body of Christ and having a relationship with a prostitute. That's graphic. And he's saying, how can we sin with another? Essentially committing spiritual adultery, causing impurity to enter the church and staining the bride's purity. The one who joins herself to a prostitute is one body with her, he says, and they, the two shall become one flesh. You become united with the world once again. We must remember that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. So we must not be like the ten virgins in the parable of Jesus when he told in Matthew 25.10 that he said, while, we were going, while they were going away to make a purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door shut. You think about that. They waited for the last moment to prepare just as the days of Noah. Noah preached for a hundred years and he warned them of the coming judgment and they mocked him and they thought they could just continue to live as they lived. And with that door closed to the ark, there was no hope for them. In other words, when Christ returns for his bride, there will be no more opportunity for salvation. And so unbelievers will not desire to prepare. A believer will desire to prepare. We, we, we sin. It's not, it's, we, we have this trajectory. We're, we're going upwards, but we have our bumps. We, we stumble, but it's going, we're still continuing to go to an upward direction. We don't stay the same or we don't go downwards. There's a difference in us. We, we, we hate our sins. We love the things that God loves. We hate the things that he hates. We stand up for, for the, the things that, that against the, what the culture is trying to say. And we, we try to live a Christ-like life. But unbelievers don't have that desire. In the exterior, they may seem like they're trying to do good works and do, be, do good things. And they look like they can say all these things that they that I know Christ and I love Jesus and Jesus is my best friend and all these kind of things. But in, in their hearts, they, they know that they are not repented over their sin, that they love their sin. And they continue. There's no desire to prepare. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So in other words, there will be many people that will say, I went to church every Sunday. I, I prophesied in your name. I did miracles in your name. I, I went and I fed the hungry and I did this and I did that. I was that person for many years. And if I, I would have died in my sin, I would have heard those words, I don't even know you. But by his grace, I can say he's Lord of my life. I want to be in, a slave to Christ and follow his will. Matthew 24, 42 says, Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day in which your Lord will come. Beloved, let us clothe ourselves with righteousness. 
Flee temptations. Obey God's word and live a life in preparation and waiting with an expectation for the arrival of Christ. See, this is the, this is the difference. We, we, don't, we don't do these things in a legalistic way to say this is, we're, trying to, we're trying to do these things to try to uh, please man. We're not trying to add more rules than what are, are expected. We're simply trying to be biblical and try to obey what the will of God is. And so when he can come at this any moment, we must be ready and we, we know that our righteous deeds on this earth are imperfect and that Christ is perfect and that even when we do good things, it's Christ working in us. So who gets the credit? Not me, Christ alone. And so it humbles us and we feel unworthy for Christ is so worthy. When we think about that, I was on my way to hell. None of us deserve heaven and yet he has saved us I just want to do the right thing. That's all. And you think about this illustration by Joni Erickson Tata. Many of you might know who she is. A quadriplegic who was paralyzed in a diving accident as a teenager. And she talks about her wedding day. She says, I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corseting and binding my body gave me the perfect shape. The dress did not fit well, and then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over my, the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark on my dress. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that laid off-center on my lap, and my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky, gray machine with belts and gears and ball bearings. And I certainly, certainly didn't feel like a per, perfect picture-perfect picture bride in a bridal magazine. And I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Kenner's husband in the front. And there he was, standing tall and stately in a formal attire. And I saw him looking at me, craning his neck to, to look up the aisleway. And my face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all the feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. How easy it is for us to think that we are utterly unlovely, especially to someone as lovely as Christ. But he loves us with the bright eyes of a bridegroom's love, and cannot wait for the day we are united with him forever. And we, unattractive, frightened, paralyzed, and imperfect, yet wild with hope, come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We feel inadequate and unworthy, yet our eyes are fixed on Christ. We are overwhelmed with emotion as we know that we are loved and accepted just as we are, and that the wedding will bring about transformation. The blood and water that flows from his side have released us from our bondage, healed our brokenness, cleansed us of our sin. We become the bride of Christ, not just in theory or potentially, but in reality. And there, together with him, all the redeemed, we will taste the new wine of the kingdom. And so throughout our lives, we have struggled with our sins within us and around us. We face sickness and loss and pain and suffering. 
Weak and tired, we find our strength in Christ, our groom who never abandoned us, even when we were unfaithful. He was faithful. And now in his moment of arrival, we see he's coming for his bride. And he's expecting us to be pure and holy. In ancient times, the bridegroom would dress in festive garments wearing a crown. And the virgins of Israel would be outside waiting along the way. And in the evening with oil lamps lit until the loud warning cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to him. And meanwhile, the bride would get bathed and purified, perfumed and richly clothed, adorned with jewels and would receive the blessings of her family and friends. And when the bridegroom finally arrived to the entrance of the house, there would again be a cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. The bride was crowned and carried through the streets to the bridegroom's house. When Christ returns, he will come for his bride. First. Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17 says these words. The Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And we look at that verse 8 when it says that he clothed her with fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen was the righteous acts of the saints. The wedding day arrived, and so God gives his bride her wedding ground. We had this, we were clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We're not righteous because of our own righteousness, but because of Christ. It's as if you stood before a judge and, and you deserved the death penalty. And instead of seeing you and your sinfulness, Christ stands before you and he says, I paid his fine. I paid it all for him. And now he, the judge does not see you and your sinfulness. He sees Christ. But on this day, you will be clothed in a glorified body, freed from your sins, freed from sicknesses, no more ALS, no more shingles, no more cancer, no more of these things anymore. We'll be freed from our sins and we'll be restored completely. This is symbolizing the bride's spiritual purity and victory. These garments are defined as the righteous acts of God's holy people. And in 9, verse 9, it says that blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I ask you, have you been invited are you part of the Bride of Christ, the church, more than just a membership to a local body? Are you born again? Are you bought with a price? Do you desire to prepare for Christ? And if not, this day will be a day of judgment, but for those who are in Christ, it will be glorious. The wedding feast will be a grand celebration. Not for seven days as it was back then, but for eternity. For our pilgrimage has ended. Our faith has turned to sight. Free at last from the burden of sin. The ultimate goal of redemptive history was at this moment. The gathering of His people. The judgment of the reprobate. The restoration of the heavens and the earth. 
God's desire to dwell among His people has arrived with everlasting intimacy, union, fellowship, and communion between the Redeemer and the redeemed. The bride was chosen in eternity's past. The marriage was announced throughout the Old Testament. Christ took on human flesh and paid the price for His bride. The bride prepared herself for the wedding day with a longing for Christ, the bridegroom. And she remained faithful and pure. And now the wedding feast is here, and after a period of what in the eyes of God is just a little while, the bridegroom returns, and it has come, the wedding of the Lamb. The church is now as God originally designed, sinless, without tears or sorrow. Work is a joy. Relationships are in perfect harmony. The lion lays down with the Lamb. Heaven and earth are one. Nature is freed from sin and corruption, is no longer groaning for the restoration. We were once his enemies, now seated at his table at the wedding feast, dwelling with our God face to face in his internal embraces of everlasting love. Now that's the church. That's what Revelation describes you as. This is the thing. We, you think of Adam and Eve, and God knows all things. He knew before the hands of time who would be saved. He knew all these things. And Adam and Eve, he knew we, they would sin, but he chose this plan that where he, we would know him intimately to be able to understand all of his attributes. If we never knew sin, we would not know his wrath, his justice, and we certainly wouldn't understand fully his grace. And Adam and Eve were given this choice They either do this or do that, and they chose sin. And he said, if you do this, you will die. And instead of killing them in that moment, he clothed them with an animal skin, pointing to Christ in the future when Christ would be sacrificed. And he didn't kill them in that moment. He gave them an opportunity to live and to be fruitful and multiply, to gather those he would call to himself to gather as his bride. And he sent the prophets and, and the warn us of our sinfulness and to be faithful to him and to, to show his attributes and his goodness and all these things. But we chose sin. We chose our idols. We chose infidelity. And yet he continued to long for us and love us and wait for us patiently. And then he sends his only son and came to this earth and he lived 33 years without sin on our behalf. And we killed him. And yet he went to the cross. He paid the dowry. He paid the fine. He took upon himself the punishment we deserved. And this is what Christ did for us. In conclusion, as we think about these things, that Christ did all these things on our behalf. That throughout all of redemptive history, he was waiting for you to come to Christ That when he was on the cross, you were on his mind. And when we think about that, in that moment Adam and Eve sinned, they should have died. And he gave them that uh, that chance. We deserve the same thing, and yet he gave us that chance. So why would not we want to live for Christ and prepare? Imperfect, we we know we're imperfect, but to, to, to strive to strive for holiness, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as it says in the Word of God. 
that didn't say work for your salvation. It says work it out. Work out this thing that God has given you already. Show that you are a new believer. Show, show that you are a new creation by bearing fruit. And so you think about this redemptive history was pointing all to this time, up to this point and until Christ's return to gather his bride so that we may dwell together for eternity. What we have here in this church where we love to fellowship together and we love to have that time together, this is nothing compared to what we will experience for eternity. And this thing is also when we have divisions and we have conflict and we have misunderstandings amongst one another, we must remember that we're going to spend eternity with each other. So get used to me. <laughs> so I pray that we will see the beauty of the church. And as we learn about how to grow in Christ, that this will be our heart's desire. The church's one foundation is Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to the one hope she presses with every grace endued. In the midst of toil and tribulation, in all war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious, she be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, the mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, in love may dwell with thee. So let us pray. Father God, you are so good to us. I don't deserve to even utter these words. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve to be called your child. And yet, you have been so good. And the more that I learn about that preparation, about sanctification, the more I desire that for all of us, starting with myself. And so I pray, Lord God, that you will do a work in us, that these words will penetrate our hearts and minds, and that we'll meditate on this for the rest of our days, that we'll live as the body of Christ, representing you well, that we'll be prepared to be pure and holy for your return, and that we, as the church, will obey your word and will go and make disciples to gather people from every tribe, language, and nation that will be united with us for eternity by proclaiming the gospel, the good news that is the power to save. And in the midst of trials and tribulation and all the sufferings and struggle with sin and spiritual war within, our, within ourselves and around us, we rest in knowing that Christ is on the throne. And we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.